The Mozart effect was, is this thing that you can look up on Wikipedia. There is a psychologist at the University of Wisconsin, and he did a study on if you listen to a certain sonata, I think it was, from Mozart, that he found that it could increase um, the results of, of certain questions related to spatial temporal reasoning um, on IQ tests. Okay, So if you listen to a little bit of Mozart, you can have a temporary boost in your ability to answer those questions. The results, though, were then popularized uh, in the New York Times, Boston Globe, Vancouver Times, I think is one as well. Um, they were popularized initially as sort of lighthearted, see, this proves that Mozart is better than Beethoven, blah, blah, blah. But they were then kind of taken seriously. And folks um, went crazy over this. Soon teachers and parents took advantage of this discovery of Mozart presumably um, helping you out and, and making you just generally smarter than the idea became. If you listen to Mozart, it just makes you smart um, just by osmosis. And an uh, entrepreneur named Dan Campbell, or Don Campbell, took advantage of this in 1977, and he, he took those preliminary findings and made them into a self-help book that made some extraordinary claims of, of uh, promoting health and all these sort of things. CDs were sold under this, under this promotion. Even the governor of Georgia at the time, Zell Miller, proposed a budget to provide every child born in the state with a state-purchased CD or cassette with classical music on it. And now, and you had, you had companies selling these stethoscope-type devices so that women who were pregnant could actually play their their babies still in the womb, music of Mozart. <laughs> Why is that? Okay, maybe maybe now that sounds familiar. Um, I think there's the company called like, uh, is it? No, that's Baby Einstein or something like that. But you get you get Mozart, right? Who's going to help all of our babies become uh, brains? And why do we why do we care about that so much? Or you might think to yourself, like, I want to learn. Uh, I, I want to learn as much as I can education or gain skill set. And we view education, for example, and learning as sort of a currency of success because we view knowledge as, as a means of power. It's a means of, of controlling our own destiny. And maybe you experience this, whether it's your explicit uh, thoughts that you have are just subtly there, that when you face life's problems, if you're ever thinking to yourself, well, if only I understood more about the situation, or if I, I understood how to resolve it better, if I had more skill set, more knowledge, more education on this, then I could solve what I'm facing. That's the impulse that our passage today is addressing. He, And if you remember from Dan's uh, sermon last week when he talked about uh, the the first half of, of chapter 7, essentially. The, one of the themes, as we saw in chapter 7, verse 13 through 14, was this. He said, Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man cannot find out anything that will be after him. You can't change what God is going to do. You can't make straight what he, make, what he makes crooked. And you can't know what's before you. You can't know the future days. 
You can't change it. You can't even know it. Now, you could imagine, though, someone asking, well, well, life is difficult and there's these quandaries, but and you're saying I can't change it, I can't know it, but what if, hold on, what if maybe I can solve it through wisdom? Maybe wisdom is going to be the game changer here. Maybe I can figure things out and, and, and solve the dilemma by wisdom. And especially in an ancient world where when we hear wisdom, we would have, we sort of think of it maybe in just virtuous terms, like it's, it's just being a good person. Um, but in the ancient world, wisdom would have been ripe with ideas of like almost, almost like a power, almost like in some ways, like you have ability to manipulate your destiny and the, the environment around you, that wisdom was something that was entrenched with ability to control your life, a strong skill set. And as we've been following the book of Ecclesiastes, the first half um, from chapter 112 through 6-9 was largely about how do we live well in a world full of false pursuits. And so our preacher has gone on this quest looking at all these different pursuits and he finds them to be vanity, these false pursuits. And really the question isn't just how do we live well, but how do I live in a way that I actually experience joy in a world of false pursuits that are just dead ends to joy? The second half of the book, though, now, as we started last week in uh, chapter 6, 10, all the way to 11, 6, is really how do I live well in a world that I can't grasp and make sense of, where I can't really fully grasp these things. And again, the question isn't just how do I live well, but how do I find joy in a world where I can't make sense of everything? Because maybe there's all these pursuits that I found to be false, but maybe it's just a matter of figuring it all out. And he says you can't. You can't make sense of it all. And all of this is, he wants to bring us to the point again of heading us towards an understanding where we can get joy and that is found, as he says at the end of the book, in fearing God. So he brings up this, this question of wisdom. What if, the objector might say, what if wisdom is the key? Now we have to define wisdom. What we mean by wisdom is this. Wisdom, I think, as the Bible typically uses it, is viewed as a skill set. You might think of it as a skill. It's not just knowledge, but it's a skill. It's something that you apply. And specifically, it's a skill for living well in the world. You're able to live well in the world. Even further, biblically speaking, it's knowing how to live well in God's world, the way he's ordered things. And so that's why Proverbs will say that the beginning of wisdom is fearing God. Because you're not going to live well in God's world as, as he created it unless you fear God. And so there's different components to this wisdom, living well. There's Because it's obviously living well in God's world, it, there's a moral component. Component. That's why, biblically speaking, wisdom is, is someone who is to do right. To be wise is to be righteous. Those go hand in glove. There's also an understanding piece. And we'll see both of those in today's passage. Both the moral side of wisdom, doing what's right, the righteous versus the wicked and the fool, but also the understanding piece of wisdom, that just being able to understand the world. And what what today's passage is going to show us is this. Can wisdom solve the problem that we that we are limited, that we can't know the future, that we can't control our destiny? No, wisdom cannot. In fact, part of wisdom, our preacher will argue, is knowing the limits 
of wisdom. Part of wisdom is knowing the limits of wisdom. The first point here, there's four points in our passage. The first point is this, is that wisdom cannot guarantee our security. So he'll give us four limits to wisdom. And the first is this in verses 15 through 18, that wisdom cannot guarantee our security. And so he starts off in verse 15. He says, in my vain life, I have seen everything. I've seen both of these things, that there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. That is, he perishes despite being righteous. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. That is, despite the fact that he's evil. And of course, this is built off of the, the assumption that generally speaking, even as Proverbs teaches us, those who live rightly, things will go well for them. And those who don't live rightly, pursue wickedness, generally speaking, things do not go well for them. This is sort of the general principle that we find in wisdom literature. It's called the retribution principle. Essentially, you get what's coming your way. Now, he's not knocking that principle here. He's not knocking wisdom and, and that it does have benefits. What he's highlighting here in verse 15, though, is that it's not, it's a general principle. It's not an absolute rule. There are exceptions to that general principle. Exceptions that, that can, we can find quite disturbing. And maybe you can think of examples of the fact that in this world there are people that we would consider to be good, good folks, people who are doing what's right, and they die at a young age. And, and on the other hand, we have folks who are, who don't do what's right, who seem to be wicked, and their lives are prolonged. They, they, why don't those folks, if someone's gonna have to die, why can't it be the ones who seem to deserve it? I had a friend who, my freshman year of college, I got, I was at camp and I got, uh, a call or a letter or something, I can't even remember, but I remember sitting in the cafeteria where someone notified me that my friend from high school um, had, he, I, he he didn't know how to swim, and I remember him telling me that, he didn't know how to swim, and he was out cleaning a boat in the lake, and it drifted out, and he ended up drowning and dying. Um, this kid was like, this was like a solid guy, like he was known for being like a stand-up Christian in our school. Like why would he die of something that just seems so meaningless? Or um, Anne and I, we knew folks in college. Um, one of them was actually Anne's roommate, and they—he was—he was going into ministry. I think it was like his first year or so into ministry. And they were taking some kids on a bus for some youth retreat, and the bus brakes went out and it crashed, and both of them died. And they left uh, their toddler son here on this earth alone. Um, or you think about just. Our old location, there was that police officer who got shot and was killed like a couple blocks from where we used to meet. Um, I was talking to Steve Radomsky and he was saying how that guy, he knew that guy and how that guy, his wife find out, found out she was pregnant just like the week of the fact that he, when he died. And you're like, why is it, so, like someone who seems to be doing the right thing and kind of living life the right way, why do they have to die? And you have these folks who, who it seems like death would be like a just service to them. And they live on. So he gives us two warnings in verse 16 and 17. He says this in verse 16 and 17. He says, do not, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked and neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? And immediately we're like, what? What did he just say? The Bible said not to be overly 
righteous. Did I hear that right? Now, let's get, let's get this straight. I don't think this passage is telling us don't do what's right. Don't be righteous. Okay? There's a couple reasons for that. In verse 18, he'll, he'll commend the one who fears God. So clearly he's saying we should be wise. We should be righteous. We should be people who fear God. The, the key to verse 16 and 17 is understanding how it responds to verse 15. They're not just two separate statements, but it's responding. And theologically speaking, is it even possible to be overly righteous if that's simply what you meant, just straightforward? You can't love God too much with all your heart, heart mind, soul, and strength. He, he, the Bible tells us to love God with everything we are. You can't be overly righteous in that sense. And can you be overly wicked? Any form of wickedness, the Bible says, is too much wickedness. And so I don't think that's what he means. What I think he means is this. You can imagine someone going through life under the general assumption of that retribution principle that the good folks, that things should go well for them, bad folks, things should go poorly for them. And all of a sudden, my friend Peter dies at a young age, a good guy. And they think, well, maybe... Maybe what I need to do is maybe Peter wasn't righteous enough. Maybe he wasn't wise enough. Maybe if I go above and beyond, if I just, if I get really intense about this righteousness and I try to, maybe if I'm righteous enough, I can sort of determine my fate. I can, I can secure a prolonged life. I can sort of force God's hand. Or maybe the idea is if I, if I just get enough wisdom, then maybe, maybe it was just that Peter lacked wisdom, and I just need to—I need to have enough wisdom to escape those sort of tragedies. Or on the other hand, one might say, "Well, if that's true, if being righteous doesn't necessarily guarantee that your life is going to go on and things are going to go well for you, then forget about it. What does it matter? I'm going to bank on the exceptions. I'm going to be wicked. Doesn't matter anyways." And so I think that's the idea here, is the idea of, of a sort of over-righteousness, a super-righteousness or a, 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 a super-wickedness, someone that's just diving straight into wickedness as a way of responding to the reversed retribution principle in verse 15. And how often do we feel like that or react that way when we see something bad happen to someone good? Or when we, as chapter 7, verse 14 says, when we experience the day of adversity, we think maybe if I just have an, enough, enough wisdom, if I, I could maybe then avoid life's problems. Like the reason these bad things are happening is because I just don't, I'm just not, I need to get more wisdom. And then I can solve it. Airtight case. Or I need to try harder to please God. Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not righteous enough and I, it's, it's a, it's a super righteousness that said, I need to be righteous enough to make, kind of scratch God's back and then maybe He'll bless me. We can think even that way as Christians, even though that we, we know we're saved by grace, we cannot relate to God on any other terms than grace. He doesn't need anything from us. He's self-sufficient. We can't give Him anything that He would need. The only way we relate to Him is by grace and, and the cross of Christ, uh, uh proclaims that. It's all by grace. We nonetheless, in our, in our daily life, sometimes fall into the, the trap of thinking, well, I do this and therefore God will like me more. Or if I don't do this, now he's, he's, he's going to make things go bad for me because he doesn't like me anymore. Or we say, well, if good, if bad things happen to good people, then maybe I should just give up on this Christianity, this Christian life stuff. What's the point? I'll just be foolish. I'll just be wicked. 
Or if you're here today and you're not a believer, I think this, these principles also um, challenge you as well. Because what's the ultimate sort of thought process of, well, if I just am righteous enough to sort of earn God's favor or to, or to make things go well for me, is this idea that we can somehow earn a place before God. That we understand, like, we, we have this concept that, like, eventually I'm going to be judged by God, though we have this idea that he'll send people to hell, and or we have this idea of other people will get to be in his kingdom. And maybe it's that if I'm good enough, you know, I'm a decent person, Well, this passage pushes back against that hard. It's not a super righteousness that enables you to have a standing before God. In fact, this passage even says you don't have a righteousness at all in verse 20. What does he say? He says, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who always does good and never sins. Or in verse 29, God made man upright, but we've sought out many schemes. that We can't somehow get ourselves back into a right relationship with God through our own sort of self-reformation or by being good enough people. Or even if you're just spiritual and you don't necessarily believe in the God of the Bible, that can be the impulse you have as well. Well, if only I do this, then I get myself right with the universe or whatever the case may be. Well, the God who speaks, the God who reveals himself, says that's not how you relate to me. It's only through the death of Christ. It's only by placing your faith in him that you can be made right with God. And on the other hand, I think this passage pushes against those who would say, well, I don't really care about that stuff, and I'm just kind of living my life on my own. I'm my own boss. This is my life. I do what I want. And you're in a cavalier mode pursuing sin and pursuing your own way. And this passage says, don't be overly wicked either. Psalm 130, verse 3, says, If the Lord counted our sins, who could stand? It confronts us with the reality that we are accountable to a God who is holy and will judge us for our sins. And yet the the psalm continues that he forgives us that we may fear him, that we may learn to fear him. And that forgiveness, of course, is found in Christ in his death on the cross. Our preacher gives reasons why we should avoid this over-righteousness, this super-righteousness and super-wickedness. On the one hand, in verse 16, he says, don't be super wise or super righteous in that sense because you'll ruin yourself as we've learned throughout the book wisdom is is it's good but it can provide us vexation if we look to it as the ultimate solution the other thing too is if if you pursue that sort of lifestyle where you're so concerned about like earning your outcome by your righteousness I mean, that's a, you're probably going to tend to be pretty uptight. You're going to be a killjoy in many ways. You're going to be so worried about maintaining that righteousness that you can't actually find joy that the book commends us to have. Find joy. On the other hand, if you're a fool, he says, why should you be a fool and die prematurely? As we know, a lot of folks who pursue wickedness, there are exceptions, as he says, but generally speaking, a life of wickedness is going to make you more susceptible to die early when you engage in those sort of things. So what is what is the response he tells us, verse 18? He tells us to fear God. He says, verse 18, It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that with, withhold not your hand. Or as some translations say, It's good that you hold on to the one without letting go of the other. The idea that there's two warnings here, and you need to hold on to both of them. 
For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. And the translations go different ways. Either it's the one who fears God will succeed holding on to both or will escape the pitfalls of both. Whatever the case is, it's the idea that the one who fears God avoids both the warnings and, and adheres to both of the instructions. What does it mean to fear God in this sense? It means that when we understand that we have to accept our creaturely status before him. We don't try to control things. We're not in control. We own that. We own there's a, there's a difference. There's a distance between us and God. I'm not in his spot. And so I have to trust and submit myself to him. And both of the responses, super arrogance, their super righteousness and super wickedness are arrogant responses. They're, they're the very opposite of fearing God. Super righteousness is, is an arrogance of, of thinking that I can force God's hand. Chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 says he's in control. And super arrogance says, yeah, but I'm going to still be able to dictate things by being righteous. And foolish wickedness says, well, I'm not even going to fear God because I'm going to do things my own way. I'm not going to worry about the consequences of my sin. Whereas preacher tells us, part of wisdom is knowing the limits of wisdom and fearing God. Embracing a position of fearing God. Second, in verse 19 through 22, he tells us that wisdom is limited because wisdom is scarce. It's rare. Verse 19, he tells us that wisdom is valuable. Wisdom gives strength to the wise more than ten rulers who are in a city. We have the Super Bowl coming up, and Vegas always does these odds, um, like ten to one or whatever that stuff is. I don't really know. But if you were to give odds, not for the Super Bowl, but for a man... And ten rulers, presumably you'd go with the ten rulers. I mean, ten rulers are pretty powerful, right? Rulers, like we think of them today, they have the, they have the ability to affect people's wealth, affect people's health in many ways, affect the outcome of their life, their education, whether they go to war. And yet he says this one man who is wise has more power than even ten rulers in a city. He has more protection than ten men view them as being in a walled city, protected. Because why? Even the the ability to rule is contingent on having wisdom. But notice this. Even though wisdom would be good, it makes you superior to even ten rulers in a city. It's incredibly rare and scarce. Because wisdom is predicated on righteousness. Wisdom needs righteousness. And the problem in verse 20 is that we're not righteous. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And then he gives this example in verse 21 and 22 of the universality of sin by showing how we all slander. He says this, he says, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. You yourself have cursed others. We all do it. You think about the end of the day, where maybe you don't, maybe you think, well, I don't really, I don't really slander other people, but I mean, even as I was preparing this lesson, I was driving down 27th, and someone was like taking forever to turn left, and the light turned red, and I'm like, we're in the middle of the intersection, dude, and I'm like mumbling under my breath, like, go, dude, go, go, and I'm thinking to myself, I just did it, right? You think to the end of the day, how easy it is to have complained against your boss, or to complain about your spouse or whoever it may be. We all do it. 
Wisdom is predicated on righteousness, righteousness, but we're a bunch of unrighteous slanderers. It's rare, it's scarce. He affirms that wisdom is good, and it seems like we can possess some parcel of it, but in light of the universality of sin and the pervasiveness of foolishness, doesn't it sort of relativize and minimize whatever sense in which we can speak of having wisdom? Our level of wisdom, whatever it be, certainly at least isn't up to scale as a solution to the ultimate perplexities and quandaries of life. Part of wisdom is knowing the limits of wisdom. Third, wisdom is limited because it is elusive, inaccessible, and remote. It's elusive and inaccessible. Verse 23 and 24, he said, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But what? It was far from me. It was distant. It was it was removed. That which has been is far off. And then he gives vertical and horizontal sort of imagery here. He says, he says it was it was deep, very deep, and far off. Who can find it out? Now I don't think he's saying that that we can't get any sort of wisdom. I, I think he understands, like we can be wise in a sense. But he's saying that that ultimate form of wisdom that transcends limits, that can provide an ultimate solution to the perplexities and dilemmas of life, that is not something we can grasp. We can't even understand why the righteous person dies despite being righteous, verse 15. When I, when I was in seminary, one of the books I read when I was taking a philosophy class was David Hume's Dialogue Concerning Natural Religion which is about as exciting as it sounds. Actually, it's okay. It's actually okay if you like philosophy. Um, but in this book, David Hume, who is a skeptic Scottish philosopher, he has three characters. It's like a fiction book. Three characters who are arguing. And one of the effects of the book is that you have this, this like orthodox theologian arguing with like a natural theologian arguing with a skeptic. Is that they're all arguing about natural theology and the teleological and the cosmological and the ontological arguments. And you start to like read one and you're like, oh, that sounds really good. And you read another and he's like, oh, his arguments sound good. And by the end of it, you're like, I don't know, I don't know what to think. I don't know what to believe. They're, all these guys, all these characters sound smart and I'm just super confused. And if you've ever read philosophy, that can be a feeling that you often have, is that you read one guy and he's super smart and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. I hear what you're saying there. And you read someone else, he's like, nope, that's not right. And the more you learn, the more you realize that you don't know. I mean, to give a more commonplace example, think about eggs. One day they give a study that says eggs are healthy for you and the next day they tell you that eggs are bad for you. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen the reverse. Right? This is supposed to be like hard science, medical. Like science and medicine are hard sciences, and yet we, we see changes even there. The more we learn, the more we realize that we don't know, and the more knowledge you seem to gain, the larger the scope of knowledge needed becomes. And the further away a sufficient degree of knowledge seems to move away. The search is never ending. Vanity, is, is, there, is there anything ultimately gained here? Ironically, the more we seem to succeed, the more we seem to dig ourselves deeper into a hole of ignorance and an intense sense of our inadequate understanding. You see, we don't have it all together. 
Okay, newsflash, you don't know it all. We like to live as if we know it all, as if we know everything and we can handle it. We have it all together. But part of wisdom is knowing the limits of our wisdom so that we might, as Proverbs say, says, don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. Fourthly, fourthly and lastly, is that wisdom is limited because wisdom is resisted and contradicted in our human nature. It is resisted and contradicted. In verses 23 to 29, the word found or find occurs eight times. It's loaded throughout. He's looking for things. And his search is this, as we'll see in verse 25, is he wants a wisdom to make sense of the whole of reality, the scheme of things, as he says. He says this in verse 25. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. And to know part of that is the wickedness of folly, how wickedness is folly and the foolishness of madness. So you want a wisdom to make sense of the whole of reality. But he's not able to do it. He can't find it. Why? As we saw, human wisdom is limited. Verse 27 and 28. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another, while putting it all together, piling it up, looking things over from every angle to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. But I have not found. And so this passage tells us not only what he didn't find, but then it also tells us what he found instead, which is this. He went looking for a wisdom to make sense of things, And ironically, what he found was a humanity deprived of that very wisdom. He went looking for wisdom, and what he found was a humanity bent against the very wisdom he was after. He found three things. First, he found the enticement and entrapment of foolishness. Verse 25 through 26. The enticement and entrapment of foolishness. Let's read verse 26. He said, And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. It's, it's, it, it, he describes this woman who is like a, like a hunter. She is traps. And whether he's talking about a specific type of woman or whether he is like the Proverbs do, using this idea of a woman who entices as sort of a symbol for foolishness. Either way, it's exemplary of what foolishness does. We might say today it's like a black hole. It sucks anything that gets close to it. It sucks it right in and just pounds it down and destroys it. You cannot escape its grasp once it has you. He does say that the one who pleases God escapes. But we've already seen how rare that person is. The implication is that is that sin is entrapping. It is not, as our culture wants to think, liberating. This is a picture of sin that destroys you. It entraps you. It is not liberation. Think about that. That, that the way wisdom literature portrays the paths is you have, you have lady wisdom that we can follow or we have lady foolishness that we can follow. And the question for us is, in our world today, we are getting pounded with voices that are either lady wisdom or lady foolishness. And which lady are we listening to? And let me tell you, lady, lady foolishness, the voice of the world, it's, it doesn't deceive us so bluntly. It swoons us. 
It doesn't explicitly reveal the destruction that awaits us. Notice, the picture is of an attractive, sexual, desirous woman seducing us, intoxicating us with illicit pleasures. That is what the world's wisdom, or world's foolishness, sorry, is, is doing to us, seducing us. And that's what he's found. Secondly, he finds a pervasiveness of foolishness. Verse 27 and 28, as we read, adding it all together, he says this partway through verse 28. He didn't find wisdom, but one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. In other words, when he looked at the the host of humanity and he was looking for someone who might be wise, is probably the idea, the person who is virtuous, Among all these people, he found one guy, didn't find any women. And of course, that's not, that's not really like a promotion of like men are better somehow. That's not what he's saying. He's saying among the whole of it, he didn't find basically anyone. It's virtually non-existent. I can't find wise people. It's like one in a million, we might say. And then finally, the third thing he found was the origin of foolishness. The origin. He says this in verse 29. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. That the origin is not in God. This is not how God created us. You can imagine, if if, if it was that God created us this way, that would be a very despairing situation. But in many ways, the fact that we have gone this way, that it's, it's our fault... Not necessarily our fate, though, but it's our fault. It it validates the internal sense of protest that we have, that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And so wisdom is limited, finally and fourthly, because our own hearts resist it and contradict it. And so we might put it all together this way. If we were to put it all together, we might put it this way. That although wisdom is valuable, although wisdom is valuable, the limits of human wisdom render it unable to provide our lives security or solve life's ultimate quandaries. That although wisdom is valuable, the limits of wisdom render it unable to provide our lives security or solve life's ultimate quandaries. And where does he want to bring us with this? When we come to grips with that truth, His point, then, is to bring us to the place, as he said in verse 18, that we would be people who fear God. When we understand our own limitations, when we realize that part of wisdom is owning the limits of our wisdom, the proper response, then, is to fear God, as he says in verse 18. What that means is we accept our creaturely status before him. We we accept, I'm the creature here, I'm not God. There's a huge difference between us. You're in control, I'm not We recognize him as the one who's in control of all things. We submit to him. We entrust ourselves to him rather than trying to put ourselves on his throne. Rather than presuming that by wisdom we can solve our own problems. Part of wisdom is owning the limits of wisdom. John Calvin, in his famous book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he speaks in one part of what might be called uh, this idea of a learned ignorance. This is a good thing, he says. A learned ignorance. It's this idea of, of, of having a learning, a learned 
contentment to be ignorant of that which belongs to God alone and that which God puts outside our grasp. It's learning to be okay with just being ignorant about those things that are not our job, that we don't have control of, that we don't know, saying, I get that. I fear God, though, and I know who I am before him. The beginning of wisdom is to fear God. And this is not just the duty of man. It's not just our job to do this, like we're obligated to. But get this, it is our rest to embrace this learned ignorance. That the book of Ecclesiastes is not just telling us this because it's the right stuff. It's telling us because the right stuff is the good stuff. It's the stuff where when we get this, when we live into this reality, this, this, is, the, this is the path of joy. This is liberating to be able to say, I don't have to have it all together. I don't know where my life is going. I'm going to be wise, but I understand the limits. And if I put my hope there, that's going to wreck me. Why ruin yourself? It anticipates the end of the book where ultimately he will tell us that the duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments, to be one who fears God. And it's in that path that we find joy. And ultimately, as believers, as believers, we we know this is true even more so because we know the gospel. If you think of Romans 8, the beautiful passage, Romans 8, where Paul says, listen, believers, for those who love God, all things, all things, the good and especially the bad, you can almost hear him saying, God is going to work it out for his purpose to make you like his son. Those people that God predestined, he calls and he justifies and he glorifies them. He's going to work everything out for his purpose. And so when we don't have control of life, when we don't, when we're not able to manipulate things by our wisdom or by being righteous enough, it's okay because we understand that God is in control. I'd rather, I'd far much rather have him in control anyways. He will work everything for our good. And this is something that he accomplished in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That as Romans 8 says, when it talks about God's purposes and how they cannot be thwarted, how they cannot be undone, he said, because Christ died. It is because Christ died has died, and he has risen again. God has executed his purposes. He's accomplished those purposes in the very person of Christ and his work in his death and resurrection. Christ became a human being to bear our sin on the cross. Our sin died with him. Our death dies with him. And in his resurrection, we have new life in him. That God's purposes, no matter what, Even that which we cannot control is for our good, conforming us to Christ and completing our salvation. And if you're not a believer, if you're someone here today who does not yet worship Christ, we would say that's the hope that is held out to even you. That is not a hope that everyone has. That is a hope that God gives specifically for his children, for those who embrace Christ by faith. And as we move now to the Lord's Supper and the musicians come forward, that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. When we, when we get together and we preach the word, the proclamation of the word is preaching the gospel. We hear the gospel. The gospel is spoken to us. Our hearts are encouraged. And we receive the truth from God. And the Lord's Supper, you might say, is a visual proclamation. In fact, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, for as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That when we participate in the Lord's Supper as a church... This is, it's, it's a symbol, but it's also more than a symbol. It's a symbol backed with the very promises of God. 
in which we visually and tangibly, tangibly get to experience the proclamation of the gospel in this way as well. At Crossway, we believe that the Lord's Supper is as symbol of our salvation, the body and blood of Christ, that it, it is symbol that applies specifically for believers. And so if you're a believer, we would invite you to come forward. As we've done, we'll use the center aisles, um, and then we'll cycle back just to avoid getting congested. But if you're a believer, we would encourage you to participate with us, someone who is walking in repentance, um, able to partake in a, in a way that matches the meaning of the supper. If you're not a believer, we would ask that you would refrain, though. And at this time, we will continue in song.